to episode 30 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca. I'm the IBD expert for VeryWell.com because I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989 when I was 16. I had J-pouch surgery in 1999. My guest is Angelica Catalano from The Mighty. Most of you will recognize The Mighty because they're a website that is geared towards people who are living with chronic illness. And recently, they've developed some new offerings that will help people with chronic illness connect in a safer, more positive, and more profound way not only with each other, but also with advocacy groups and nonprofits that are seeking to help people that live with chronic illness. And why am I talking to Angelica in particular? Because she also has IBD. She will tell you her story coming up next. Hi, Angelica. How's it going? <laughs> Good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's Friday. I understand that you're a person living with IBD, but you are also a person that works for the Mighty. Yes. So, Angelica, I was hoping you would take me through a little bit of your diagnosis journey and maybe something about how you're doing today. Anything that you want to share about how you manage your disease would be great. Sure, absolutely. So I have had IBD for 25 years now. I was almost 25 years because I was six when I was first diagnosed with left-sided ulcerative colitis. Um, so I had some symptoms uh, before leaving the country and when I was in Europe, uh, seeing some family in Spain, I had these stomach issues out of nowhere. And when I got back into the country, um, everything kept progressing with not only just the normal stomach bug type symptoms, but alarming things like blood. So I quickly got help. Uh, went to the doctor. It really escalated from there to the hospital. And they were checking me for things like E. coli because of being out of the country. They really didn't know what was going on initially, but I was in the hospital a couple weeks as a child. And after the tests like colonoscopies and things, they came with the, the diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. So let's see here. My childhood, I was on a lot of those mesalamines, the oral. Um, as I got older, middle school, I think I began topicals around that age, um, which is always something interesting to have to get into uh, at such a young age because it is a bit invasive. Um, and then through the years, it becomes like brushing your teeth, things like the enemas and the suppositories and that kind of thing become a, a new normal. So I managed uh, my colitis with various mesalamines. And because I was able to go to school and have friendships and things like that, I thought that my illness was under control. Um, but looking back on it, I never really sustained complete remission for very long. I just got so used to being more fatigued or having these symptoms come up 
throughout my life that it was just my normal. And it wasn't until high school or college that I really started exploring more options aside from what I was on. So I did eventually get into biologics around 2013 because I just realized that even though I could handle being in a flare-up, it's not ideal to have this lingering inflammation in the background. You know, when you're younger, you realize I could, I could get through this. It's fine. And when you get older, you realize, well, this increases my risk for colon cancer. I could get other complications if I just let this inflammation smolder. So that's why I switched to biologics. And I've been on them for the past five years. I've had various, been on various different kinds. And um, it wasn't until mm, about two years after starting biologics that I realized my illness had developed complications. So um, I kind of went into that territory of abscesses, um, that kind of thing. I just had gotten so used to dealing with it that when I was in a lot of pain, I went to a colorectal surgeon and she just told me, you know, you have fissures, this, that. And I just kept living with really, really bad pain going to work until um, I called the colorectal surgeon from the ER on one Saturday morning and she said, take a sits bath, you know, fissures are really painful. And that night I had emergency surgery um, for an abscess. So that was kind of the moment when I realized that just being in these low-grade flare-ups really could turn into something larger. And just because I was functioning and able to have a life didn't mean I was actually controlling my disease very well. That was a wake-up call. And working at the Mighty was actually awesome because I was able to take a medical leave after that surgery and really, really just focus on, okay, I'm not managing this as well as I think I am. Um, once you start in this abscess fistula world, things become a slippery slope. So I really wanted to nip it in the bud, took time off work, was able to get into remission. Um, but I'm, I'm still constantly trying new things because my body seems to adapt very quickly to different medicines and I will initially be doing well and then I, I'll stop responding. That's, that's kind of where I am now, actually, before this, this interview. Um, they called me because my colonoscopy is a week from today and they said, hey, we have an opening Monday. Do you want to take it? And I said, yes. I always like to get a jump on a colonoscopy if I could get in sooner. So that's where I am today. So we'll actually see it, what, where I'm at because it, it is so hard to tell when you've had an illness so long. It's hard to judge what is considered good and not. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you completely. It's funny listening to you because your experience mirrored so much of my own being diagnosed with left-sided colitis young. You still managed to have goals and achieve your goals, right? Yes, it's, it's deceiving <laughs> when you could lead this life and you think you're doing well because you're able to do these things and you know people have much worse symptoms and have to frequently be in the hospital. So you think just because I'm not there doesn't mean I'm not managing my illness. 
something that we've talked about a few times on this podcast with different guests who have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease is the idea of feeling that other people have it worse. And so maybe you should just sort of suck it up a little bit. Do you know, do you find yourself falling into that trap? Oh, yes. A hundred percent. If it wasn't for the abscess, I probably wouldn't realize that I need to put more time into managing my illness than I was. Um, That was a wake up call for me that this, I really need to do a better job and not just suck it up all the time. You were realizing that you didn't manage your disease, even though you are someone who works for The Mighty, which is a website that specializes in chronic illness. Um, I just find it interesting because I feel the same way that I was knowledgeable, should have been managing my disease better and really wasn't. (laughs) So what, what, why do we do this? Why do you think we do this to ourselves? I don't know. I think having a disease for a long time, like you said, you get this new normal. So, and then you are aware of people that have much more complications or worse symptoms. So as long as you're able to do things, you think, yeah, I can do things. I'm, I'm good. So I think that that's why it's great at the mighty people on various levels of where they're at with their condition come together and share these similar experiences and help each other you know advocate for themselves and say no you shouldn't you don't deserve to put up with this you need to put yourself first you need to not just be this superhero all the time and strong and it's okay to take time off work it's okay to take time to put yourself first. So I started eventually practicing what I preached. How do you put yourself first in your life? What are some of the things that you might do for yourself that we might consider sort of self-care? Yes. I think one thing is just not being guilty, taking time off to go to that extra doctor appointment. Um, Usually I would try to see the doctor as little as possible. Um, But I really do put aside the time to be in communication with my doctor a lot more. And things like meetings and friends can definitely wait. And learning that good friends and family members understand when you have to cancel plans and you have to rest. And obviously, sometimes it feels great to be able to push yourself and do something fun. But other times, you're not letting anyone down if you have to say no to something. So a lot of times self-care for me is putting in the extra uh, time with my doctor and missing out on things um, and having to say no to plans that would just make it too hard to fit everything in. Yes. Saying no, that's something that I'm learning how to do myself. And I'm 45. I've had IBD for almost 30 years. And so it's taken me this long (laughs) to figure out how to say no to people. And so as you've gone along, how has IBD affected your friendships in that way when you do have to sort of curtail and and you're not like every other, you know, 20-something? Yeah, I would say it is hard for some people to understand because of the whole, well, you look good thing. And um, they have eventually, I think all of my friends have been supportive because I try to explain to the best of my ability why one day I could be fine and do something and the next I can't. Um, 
And honestly, that's a conversation we have a lot on The Mighty is people having a hard time explaining to their friends and family that they need to cancel. But then the next week, you, you may be out somewhere and then people say, well, I thought you were sick. And just trying to teach people how chronic illness is not like some linear thing. It, it, it changes by the day sometimes. So um, just trying to raise awareness about that for the people in your life so they could understand it. It's kind of sometimes a last minute decision whether or not you could do something. I agree. Yeah, it's a it's a constant adjustment. And I think the you look good thing, we get that a lot because IBD is an invisible illness. Sometimes I think the you look good has a lot to do with weight, honestly. Do you think that that has uh, affected you? I just remember some brief moments in college where I became very, very thin. Um, and it was more because I was on these steroid topicals for the first time and they kind of shut my system down for a while and I wasn't able to eat. It was kind of a reverse. Usually people think you, well, you do lose weight when you have like a lot of diarrhea, but this was the, the time I got one of my like thinnest times was during this when my body was shutting down with these steroids and I couldn't eat anything. And um, yeah, people would see me out and still think I looked good. And that really did mess with me a little bit because I was not healthy. It was, I was on a medicine making me do this, just like when you're on prednisone and it makes your face, you know, get large. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really weird thing to have to deal with. Um, but I never let it get to me too much. I know as a child, when I was on steroids, um, kids would be like, why is your face weird looking? And I would, I would just be happy if I was feeling well. So th those kind of comments didn't really get to me, but it's something a lot of people deal with. And I just think the awareness alone and learning that medicines could do this to your body and things like that really help people understand not to judge your appearance. Did somebody actually say that to you when you were a child? Yes, yes. They asked why my face looks so weird. Oh my <laughs> yeah. How did you cope with that? I think I was even more ignorance is bliss in that I, I felt just, I'm feeling well. I get to still play and do these things because the medicine is working. And I, I felt really grateful from a young age because being in the hospital, you would see children with all kinds of conditions and some would have to stay a lot longer or, or worse. Um, and so I, I grew up just really thinking I was lucky that things were even working for me. And it wasn't until later in life when I realized there's these complications that could happen. There's the colon cancer. That's when I started realizing, well, yeah, I don't have it that bad, but this is still something to take seriously. <laughs> so it sounds like maybe nobody ever really sat down with you and explained that there could be complications or the, the association with colon cancer. I didn't really talk about that stuff until I started managing it myself when I was in my late teens and into college. Um, 
I remember very specifically, I, I went to the Cleveland Clinic as a child, and I liked my experience there a lot. And I remember asking the doctor if these flare-ups could damage my body permanently. And his answer was, I was too young to really have him get into the whole story. So he basically said, no, no, what you feel these cramps or these things aren't doing permanent damage. And that really relieved me um, until I realized, well, over time, yeah, there, <laughs> there is damage that can be done. So it, I'm glad that my childhood, I wasn't exposed to all the possibilities that IBD could have for me. And it was kind of this process of me managing my illness on my own from the time, you know, I was around 18 on that I really started learning about the full scope of what could happen. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, thread to pull at as to how much children with IBD should actually be told. Because as a child, you're really not responsible for your disease management at that point. You know, you're relying on your parents and your physicians for that. Were your parents a little more aware of things? Yes, they were. And, you know, my mom was very aware. And I think that's why she was stressed a lot. Um, I remember she would have these binders full of notes and things like that. And it's funny because I'll open up this binder that I still have of all these, you know, phone numbers and names of people. And I look at my notes that I have these days and it, it's the same thing. I mean, when you're managing your own illness, you talk to so many doctor's offices and insurance and you have literature and you're reading online and it just, you have this whole like book of things. I don't know how you collect your, organize your records and all of that, but I've, I've seen me become like how my mom was. And I never used to know why there was so much paperwork and what, what was all of this she was doing. <laughs> and then the takeover from being a child, being a little more reliant on parents and your physicians to manage everything. And then one day you're responsible for yourself. Well, hopefully it's not one day. Hopefully it's a process. How did the process go for you? For me, it was a little bit like I just moved from one set of doctors to another set of doctors. Um, well, I've been to quite a few hospitals in my day. Um, and what was the process like? I, I just really would become very involved with the, the new office, get to know my doctor and everyone supporting my doctor and be very, try to be very in touch with them. But then I would go from one hospital to the other just because of I've lived in New York and LA and now I'm back in New York. Um, so I've been to quite a few hospitals and it was more just trying to fully immerse myself in my new treatment plan, my new tr support team. Um, and I really just used them. I, I never used outside uh, support, just kind of went all in with whatever hospital I was working with. Yeah, I think it's really challenging moving from, well, I know it's really challenging moving from being a pediatric patient to an adult patient. And in recent years, there's been more of a focus on that for people with IBD because it is so complex. And how do you go from having someone handle most of this for you? And then one day you're sort of 
thrust into it. And not only are you the one that has the disease and, and all of that, but then you're also the one that has to make all the phone calls and the appointments and so on and so forth. It's a lot, you know. So people that understand it are working towards making that a little more of a easier transition for for people today. Yes. And that's why it is great that we do have so many nonprofits that focus on all different facets of helping patients. And, you know, on the Mighty, we have these personal stories from people that are going through it themselves. And then we supplement the stories with, you know, embedding resources from nonprofits and things like that. And now with the platform, we have nonprofits be able to directly connect with patients on the platform, which is really exciting because we really want to connect those dots for people because there is so much available out there. It's just hard to sift through it all. That is so true. I feel like there is a lot of information out there. It's not all good information. And so patients really need to be able to develop their own sort of smell test as far as what's something that can be reliable and something that's not reliable. Hey, this is Stephanie from The Stolen Colon. I'm a mom of two young kids, and I'm living with Crohn's disease and a permanent ileostomy. I'm inviting you to be a part of the conversation on Twitter for parents with IBD and parents of kids who have IBD. Use the hashtag IBDMoms to join in and to get all the info on our upcoming Twitter chats. While you're there, don't forget to follow me at SMLHughes and check out my blog at StolenColon.com. Tell me first, talking about the Mighty, what what's your title at the Mighty and how did you get started there? Yes. Um, so I'm director of media partnerships, but I actually work way more with nonprofit partnerships these days. Um, so I got started with them almost four years ago at the pretty much beginning when we were a digital publisher of stories. Um, it's been amazing to see it grow so quickly and into something that's much larger than just a publisher, but a platform. Um, so I got involved with them because I've always been in health media from the start. My aim was always to use the internet to have these conversations about health that not everyone's having. Um, and I first got started on the writing end of things for doctors actually, like ghostwriting. But I was actually not as interested in that because a lot of the focus ended up being on lifestyle habits that you could do to be healthier. And it wasn't really addressing what happens when you already have conditions. And really whatever you do could help a little bit, or, but it's, it's not everything. You know, there's a lot of health and wellness talk about what you could do yourself to become healthier. And I was a little bit not, I just didn't want to pursue that side of health media more. And that's when I moved to LA um, to get involved in some other work, but I still always had this passion for remaining in health media and changing the conversations we're having around health. So when I met Mike Porath, the founder of The Mighty, I just wanted to learn about it. I had read about The Mighty. They were very new. They had one editor that came from the Huffington Post, and it was Mike. And we met for the first time in this like tiny office space. Um, I had just had a remicade infusion, I think. And I just talked to them about uh, him about his vision for what The Mighty could become. He wanted to create a place where people connected through stories 
that is what helped his family when they got uh, this rare diagnosis um, of his child, Annabelle. He wanted to find more families going through similar things. And it was very hard for him, but it was very valuable to the family. So he wanted to create a place online where anyone that had a disease, disability, or mental illness could come and connect through their personal stories. Um, so when he was telling me this, I was so excited because that's why I got into health media initially. Um, my background in college, I studied writing, but also human development and all of this um, literature on just what makes us humans and uh, all of this health stuff I was so passionate about, but not from the perspective of what can you do to be a healthier person, like exercise, eating well, but really raw, real conversations about what happens when you do have this diagnosis. How do you navigate it? How could you connect with other people that are sharing similar experiences? So I was so on board with the idea of the mighty from early on that I wasn't even looking for a new job, but I started um, immediately and uh, definitely switched from my writing role because I, I saw the need to really connect and make partnerships with nonprofits and other media companies to help grow um, these great firsthand stories we were getting from people with disease and disability. Um, and I, I felt like I needed to take a step back from writing so that I could get these other stories out to people that needed to read them. And now The Mighty also has an app where people can connect on that level. I downloaded it. I was playing around with it a little bit. Talk to me some more about how you have a vision for the app, where you want to take it, how you would hope that people use it and what they can get out of it. Because it's a little bit of a hurdle getting someone to sign on to a new social media platform, right? Yes. So I think the idea for it really started when we realized there's so many voices out there and we couldn't publish them all. So we would get all of these submissions and not all of them would quite fit into what we were publishing. And the worst thing is to have all of these really important voices that need to be heard about their health journeys and not have a place for them. So we decided as a team that there needed to be other ways that people could share their stories, ask their questions, post shorter snippets of what they're going through um, so that our tech team built these features called Thoughts and Questions. And that is how we launched the platform very recently and and then the app shortly after. Um, So basically, anyone could sign up and post a thought or a question using hashtags related to what their health condition is and immediately get it seen by other people who are following these similar topics. Everything that they post ranges from specific medical things to um, questions about dealing with friends or family members, communicating to your doctor, dating your significant others, all of these things that are really important to navigate when you're also managing an illness. So we get just so many interesting conversations on there and people really feeling less alone when they, they are experiencing something similar. Um, And also just 
finding helpful ways to navigate through things by someone else sharing what's helped them when you know, someone doesn't really understand what they're going through and how to communicate that. So there's just so many possibilities for the conversations that could be had on the site. And it's already like every minute a conversation is starting. Um, we have 2 million registered members already. It's growing very fast. Um, but we see so much potential for not just people helping each other, but bringing in our nonprofit partners so that they could directly access these members in a way that they haven't before. Something that I think I've realized over recent years is, speaking about nonprofits, is that sometimes people, when they're diagnosed with a condition, especially chronic illness, that they may not realize that there's an advocacy group out there, and then they may not realize what kind of services that the advocacy groups are offering that can help them. Is that something you're pursuing and how to make those connections for people? Yes, for sure. So prior to this new these new features, we would have these clickable resources embedded in relevant stories. So if you're reading something um, on a certain topic, then a very related nonprofit box would appear and it would list like three relevant resources that you could directly click through to. So that was how we initially started doing it. And then we work with nonprofits and creating content together. Um, or we would help get their resources out via social because we also have a very large, you know, Facebook presence. We have dozens of Facebook pages with millions of people following it. So we would help distribute these resources, whether it's about their events or research through that. But now that we have our own platform, we could incorporate it with them actually having their own accounts on the Mighty. So they're actually able to directly respond to people um, in the comments. And that's something that we're so excited to be able to give these nonprofit partners is a way to directly connect with these very specific communities around what who they're working for. And I was trying to get a sense a little bit of the app and how people were using it. There's thoughts and then there's questions. And then also the overarching seems to be disease communities or maybe not so much disease communities, but a, a topic. Okay, so then you belong to a topic or you follow a topic. You can also follow people. So then you're going to see through your newsfeed, seems like a newsfeed, things that are on that topic. And then you're also going to see things from the people that you follow. Yes, and the nonprofits that you follow. So that's cool too, is that nonprofits have the ability to follow people and be followed back. Oh, great. So that means that um, there's someone from the nonprofit that maintains a presence there. So you could actually... Uh, you know, a lot of nonprofits, you know, have Twitter handles and Facebook and stuff like that. But I know some of them are quite large and it can be a challenge to have a conversation with someone. So this sounds like a great way that the nonprofit can find the people that need them. And then the reverse is true as well. Yes. And what's really comforting is that it, it is a safe space because we have not only this moderation tool that our tech team built to help screen out the things that don't belong on our site, but we have two full-time moderators, um, real humans that are looking out for these conversations, making sure that people could post sensitive topics and be not judged or 
attacked. So, you know, there are these helpful groups out there maybe that are closed Facebook groups so people feel safer talking about sensitive topics. But a lot of times they're volunteer run and it's great they even started that page to begin with, but they have their own jobs and lives and are having an illness themselves. And so sometimes the space could get out of hand and this is our focus is that it, it's just safe all the time. So we feel comforted also inviting our nonprofit partners to engage in these topics and sensitive discussions without feeling like there's going to be any threat to people's safety. I love that word, moderation, because it is lacking at times. And with some of the other social media platforms that are not geared toward chronic illness, one of the things that concerns me sometimes is that if you're not really very up on how it works and who can be when things change from day to day, that it could be easy for someone to see what you're following or what you're engaging with. And then perhaps maybe that's not something that you want to put out there. That's a good point. I have noticed I will follow things on Facebook. It's like Crohn's and colitis, Crohn's and colitis and all of these things. Um, yeah, so this is, it's a more private space once you log in. Everyone is connected to disease, disability, or mental illness. And so even when you narrow down what you're engaging about with the hashtags, you're still in a general community where there's this kind of shared understanding. And one of the things that I think impacts patients' lives most significantly, aside from having a great care team and then having a support structure around you, is engaging with other patients. I'm excited. I mean, some people do like to go to support groups in person and this supplements it. And then others, for various reasons, would rather be in a digital space. So either way, um, it's either a great supplement or or first kind of support system um, for people that don't really have it. Right. Uh, a lot of people don't have it. The people in their lives can sometimes get worn down by their illness. And how is the mighty thinking about, in a broader sense, about how to keep it a, a positive and a hopeful space for the patients that come in? Yes, that's a great question. Um, we do focus uh, different campaigns around messages that will support one another. So we have... Um, different hashtags that we have people encourage people to use. Um, like if you feel hopeless or check in with me or keep going or daily affirmation. And these tend to have um, responses that are positive affirmations that help people keep going in those things. So we try to strike up these campaigns that will really encourage that kind of positive support instead of just staying in it this state where people are constantly venting, which we do have as well. It's important that we don't sugarcoat and just always have these inspirational sayings and just making it seem like the experience isn't as hard as it is. So it is still very real, but we do have these campaigns that put a lot of hope into things and people could share these stories of hope. That's perfect. I love that response. Thank you so much for that. And let me know in, in wrapping up here, how can people find the various offerings that the Mighty has? Yes. Yeah, so initially we were just on like the social networks like Facebook, 
Twitter and Instagram. Um, we still are there and very active, but just going to themighty.com, you could become a member pretty easily. All you have to do is sign up like you do for most other things. You get a login link to your email, you click on that link and you're logged in. Um, with the app, it's great because then you're just always logged in and you don't even have to deal with forgetting your password and that kind of thing. Um, so if you do have an iPhone, right now you could get the app. We are working on having the ability um, to have the app for Android. But even if you don't have an iPhone, you could use the new platform just on your computer or on your phone. It just won't be the, the app, which is, you know, obviously apps, you know how they function <laughs> that much better. Yeah, it is kind of nice to be able to have it no matter where you are. So I just have one more question for you. Um, Sunday is going to be prep day for you then. Do you have any tips about colonoscopy? How do you manage that day? What do you do? Do you do anything for yourself afterwards as a fun thing? I mean, yes, eat food. Um, I, it used to be, you know, the prep used to be worse because it was like that solution that tasted bad, basically. But now um, the prep I'm doing will be the Miralax one where just, I think, I pretty much do a whole bottle of Miralax, uh, mix it in. It's, it's just easier because it goes down, not like that gross solution that had that weird, like salty taste to it. Um, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but did you ever? Oh, have yes, ma'am. I yes. absolutely okay. do so know now, what you're talking about. Um, it's Go Lightly, or I think yeah. the other name was uh, Co Light or Co Lightly or something like that. My, my memory has faded a little bit, or maybe I'm just blocking it out because to me, I always said it tasted like wallpaper paste and you drank a lot of it and eventually you were sitting on the toilet drinking it so <laughs> the, the split Miralax that would be better yes Miralax is definitely the way to go if you can I know some people may still have to do the other and it's just nice to get it done with you it's so important to get your colonoscopy and of all the other things we deal with I'm just happy to have the option to have my insides looked at. <laughs> I completely agree. Colonoscopy is part of self-care. And, you know, I always say, may it run clear quickly and may you sleep well the night before. And then here's hoping that your colon looks beautiful. Mm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Sam yeah, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing what The Mighty does. I look forward to seeing how the app is. I already have it on my phone, so I That's was already awesome. with I'm it. so glad you do. I'm kind, I'm kind of a junkie that way. I have so many social media apps on my phone that it's not even funny. Well, I would love to invite you in some um, way when we start to do a little bit more of um, events on the site too, where we could get people to tune in during certain times or, you know, have an expert answer a question because uh, you are a certified expert. So if you're ever interested, we would love to have you in a, a way where you could, you know, tell your story. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I would I would love to get more involved. I do really appreciate this idea of a of a safe space for people with chronic illness. So, in a in a positive, hopeful place as well. That's really important to me too. So, thank you so much for talking with me and for the work that you do. Thank you, Amber. Well, right. hope to talk to you soon then.
Oh, yes. Thanks. Have a great one. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Hey, super listener. Thanks for coming along on this ride with me. Can you believe this is episode 30? Pretty wild for something that I started literally on a whim. But now it has taken on a life of its own, and I love it. I have two pieces of amazing news to tell you, and I'm only going to tell you because you are a super listener. The first is that IBD Moms has just received an award from the Healthy Voices Impact Fund. That means that we can do great stuff. We're so looking forward to it. Be sure to follow the IBD Moms hashtag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can follow the IBD Moms page. Also on Instagram, follow IBD Moms. If you're a mom living with IBD or if you're a parent of a child living with IBD, we want to hear from you. What do you need help with? What would make your life better? We want to connect and provide you with education and services that are going to be helpful to you. My second piece of amazing news is that the National Ulcerative Colitis Alliance is now live at nuka.life, N-U-C-A dot life. We have a survey up right now that we would love for you to take if you're a person living with ulcerative colitis so that we can better learn about what kinds of programs that we can create that will help you. And I think that's probably enough news for this week. Thanks again. Remember to find me everywhere as about IBD. Don't be shy. Love to hear from you. And remember, I want you to know more about IBD. Thank you.